Matthew 13. And we're in the middle of a chapter of Jesus telling parables about uh, the kingdom of heaven, as he calls it, uh, the kingdom of God, as other gospels call it, uh, in many ways the church. Parables help us understand what life following Jesus is like. We're going to read today from verse 44. Say, so, Matthew 13, verse 44, let's listen to Jesus' words. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who's been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offence at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honour except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do mighty works there because of their unbelief. Let's pray. Father, we pray simply this morning that you would open our eyes, that we might see wonderful things out of your word. Do this for Jesus' name's sake, we pray. Amen. I was once an estate agent uh, in the the south of the USA, in Texas. Children, that's a man who sells houses for a living. And he was new to the job, and he was given a particularly duff house to sell, the one that no one else could sell. It was a bit of a ruin. And Time after time, he would take people out to it, and time after time, as soon as they saw it, they'd laugh and walk away. Uh, he tried every trick in the book. Uh, he marketed it as you know, having potential, uh, all the kind of things that estate agents do, but he could not sell it. And after uh, one client came and viewed the place and got particularly f- um, fed up with it, walked away, in, in, in frustration, he threw his mobile phone on the, on the ground and kicked it into the, the kind of backyard. There's a huge backyard, massive, massive back uh, garden, I guess, as we'd call it. Uh, and then he scurried around trying to find it. And as he did so, he scratched, scratched up the ground, scratched up the ground, and some sort of black liquid bubbled up. Scratched more and more, and realized that underneath the backyard, this huge sort of backfield, was oil. So, what did he do? He wasn't wealthy couldn't actually afford the property. Uh, but he and his wife sold everything. Uh, they sold their own house. Uh, they sold their car. Uh, they sat in their, their, their own little sort of front yard and sold all their possessions until they had enough money to get a loan and go and buy the house. 
And his friends thought he was mad. His colleagues thought he was mad. It was the worst house they'd ever sold. And he made him an absolute fortune. Uh, there was indeed oil in the backyard. And he became rich as Croesus. Uh, that is uh, the story of Matthew 13, the parable of the hidden treasure, verses 44 and 46. It's actually a, a version of the, of the, the parable that was uh, made by some, some filmmakers who wanted to translate Jesus' parables into, into sort of modern life, as it were. Uh, what is it that made the estate agent sell all he had? Well, it was the joy of knowing he was going to gain much more. The joy of knowing he was going to gain much, much more. And that, that is at the heart of what Jesus is teaching in these first two parables this morning. We're all after joy, aren't we? Okay, I, I, I don't, if, whether you call yourself a Christian, an atheist, you follow another religion, all of us are after joy, just after happiness. And there's not a person on earth who doesn't want, deep down, to be joyful. Verse 44, in joy, this man goes and sells all that he has. We're all searching for it. But often it feels like kind of trying to grasp the air, doesn't it? You just can't quite get it. You think this thing is going to bring joy and then it doesn't quite deliver. Jesus says, look, I can bring it. So very simply, I want to explore these parables this morning and follow Jesus' path to to joy, as it were. And the first thing he wants his disciples to know is that knowing God is better than everything. Knowing God is better than everything. The parables, the first two parables, this is verse 44 to 46, they're very similar and they're not very complicated, are they? The first one, a guy seems to be walking through a field, perhaps he's a farm labourer, but it's not his field, and he stumbles across this treasure. Uh, In days gone by, of course, there were no banks in Jesus' day, you couldn't pop down to Barclays and cash your your salary. And so it was common, really until quite recently in terms of history, it was common to to, to bury your wealth in case someone came and pinched it. Every now and again, people still stumble across them, even in the UK, don't they? Just down the road from me in, in Lincolnshire, where I lived as a teenager one day, uh, a farmer ploughed up a hoard of kind of Viking coins that had been buried. Well, actually, they were, they were Anglo-Saxon coins, buried because the, presumably the guy was worried the Vikings were going to come and nick them. And that seems to be something that's happened here. He stumbles across this treasure. Now, Jesus isn't fussed about us getting to the ethics of it. Why didn't he go and tell the guy who had... That's not the point, OK? Don't, don't worry about this guy's sort of ethics, the point is, he finds something that is so valuable that it's worth selling everything else in order to get the treasure. The treasure is hidden, and he will lose everything as long as he can get this. And it's very similar in the, in, the, in the parable of the pearl, isn't it? The great pearl. This time, it's a guy looking for pearls. He's a merchant. Pearls were, I suppose, like diamonds today. They were, they were the, the, the sort of greatest um, gem you could find in Jesus' day. And he's, in, he's searching that's one difference. He's searching, he's looking for the finest pearls. And in verse 46, he finds the absolute beauty. So great is this one pearl that he sells all the others to buy it. He's got all sorts of things, all sorts of pearls in his collection, but this one is greater than all of them. And so again, they all go, everything goes as long as he can have that one pearl. You see, the thing that's repeated in both of the mini parables is this idea of selling everything in order to get the treasure, the pearl of great price. And so the obvious, the obvious question is, is the merchant missing out? Is the farm labourer or the rambler or whatever he is, is he missing out? 
Is he foolish? Well, he doesn't think so, does he? In his joy, he goes and sells all he has. Uh, These men are delighted because although they're losing all that they have, they're gaining more. It's costing them everything, but they're ending up richer. It's not a tremendously subtle parable, but it is, in a sense, a deep one. Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter what it costs you, what you'll get from knowing me, from knowing God, is far greater. What I give you, even if it costs you your very life, is so wonderful, brings so much joy, that that it's worth losing out on anything else. In other words, if you have God, if you know God, you have everything you need for true joy. Everything you need for, for true happiness. I mean, what might be worth saying that it's not saying that if, if you become a Christian now, if you start following Jesus, that, that you never cry, you're never sad. We've sung this morning a couple of the Psalms. Many of the Psalms are songs of lament, songs of weeping and, and crying. So, so Jesus isn't promising right now on this earth that literally you'll never have another sad day. Sometimes you hear Christian preachers say that. They're usually on TV. Um, when I played, in a, I played in a cricket club uh, back in Derbyshire, and the only Christian content any of the guys in the, the club had ever seen were the kind of God channels you get on Sky. And it's an absolute disaster. Because nine times out of ten, those preachers were promising, look, start following Jesus and everything will be brilliant. He'll heal all your sicknesses. He'll make you better. He'll make you wealthy. Just put your trust in him. And, and it's nonsense. Jesus elsewhere says that following him is like taking up a cross it will involve a cost you see that in a way in this parable don't you these guys do have to make a costly decision to sell things so jesus isn't promising just this kind of idyllic life where nothing goes wrong but he is promising deep joy and ultimately of course as we know from elsewhere he's promising that when his kingdom comes in all its fullness when when jesus returns or when we die well from then onwards there'll be no suffering no pain that will be pure joy but, but how is it the case? How is it the case that if we have God, we have everything we need to be happy? Because it doesn't look likely at, at, at first glance, does it? In fact, I wonder, even if you're a Christian, I wonder if it's one of those things that you, you kind of know you're meant to say, but it doesn't feel very real. I know that it, it, deep down we're meant to say that, that knowing God brings true joy, true happiness, but honestly... Let me try and take just one way in which knowing God is a pearl of great value or brings true joy. Let's do a bit of thinking. Um, I want you to go back in time, okay, mentally go back in time, not just to Jesus' day, but further back, not just to the Old Testament, the, the pyramids, but even further back, not even just to creation, but before that, okay, before there was anything, okay, in, in, your, in your mind's eye, as it were, impossible as it may be, Go back before creation. And what do you find? You find, we well, just find God. No earth, no heavens, no stars. No, no heaven, the place where God created to dwell. Just God. What's he like? Is he cold? Mysterious? Kind of stoic? Well, the Bible tells us what he's like. One of the words that he's used to describe me is blessed, which is kind of a religious word. It basically just means happy. 
before anything came to be, before you or I existed, before the first star burst into existence, God is described as the blessed God, the happy God. He doesn't lack anything. He's not lonely. He's not sad. He's not bored. He is full of joy, full of happiness. He lacks nothing. Father, Son, and Spirit delighting in one another. One writer's called them the happy land of the Trinity. Everything is perfect in all its fullness. And then he creates. He creates the world. And we're told that the world is like a reflection of him, that the heavens declare God's glory. Man is made in his image, but in many ways all of us, sorry, all of creation is made in the image of God. When God makes the world, it reflects him in all sorts of different ways. Trees, stars, rocks, mountains, animals, humans, we all in some way reflect God's glory. The paradox is this, and this is what's so hard to get your head around. After God had made the world, there wasn't more happiness in the world. There wasn't more joy. God wasn't more happy. Nothing had been added to him because he was completely happy anyway. He was full before he created. In other words, if you have God plus the world, you haven't got any more than if you just had God. I know that, bl- that blows our minds because that's, we, we, can't, we can't get our, our minds around how, how huge God is. But God plus the world is no greater than just God. <coughs> Creation, everything that exists is just a reflection, a reflection of his glory, of his happiness, of his joy, of his wonder, of his... Let me try and illustrate this. Imagine a man who, who was longing to see his wife. Okay, that she'd gone on a long trip, and he hadn't seen her for months. And uh, he was sat in his bedroom, and you know, he hadn't been doing any housework while she was away, and he was looking in the mirror. It was a bit dusty, a bit murky. And then in, 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 in the mirror, he sees behind him his wife come through the doorway. And she says, look, I'm here. I'm here, honey, I'm home. And he doesn't turn around. And she says, look, I, I'm here, I'm here, turn around. We can be together again. We can be happy again. And he says, no, no, no. What's the doing? I don't want to lose the image. He stares at the mirror. I don't want to lose the image. What would you think of that man? you think he's mad, wouldn't you? But what's he losing by turning around, giving up the image, the reflection? Well, nothing. If he's gaining the reality of which the image was just a reflection. You'd think a man who, who wanted to embrace the mirror and wasn't willing to give up the mirror for the sake of his wife, was utterly foolish. In one sense, he's got to lose something to gain his wife. He has got to lose the mirror, the reflection. But in another sense, he's losing nothing. How foolish would the man be if he said, no, no, I'm going to stay here, love, and I'm going to polish the mirror. I'm not going to turn around and embrace you. I'm going to wipe the dust off, get rid of the smears. I want more and more of that reflection. Well, so to us, when we give ourselves and search for joy anywhere other than God. We're searching for ultimate joy in things that are meant to just reflect in little ways his full joy. Therefore, anything you have to give up to know Jesus, to know God, is really not much of a giving up. Because there's only ever a little murky reflection of the greatness of God in the first place. So I think of marriage. 
Jesus has certain things to say about marriage, about who we may and may not marry. But for some of you, it may mean you're single. And that, that, that can be tremendously painful. You don't want to be, but, but you are. For others of you, you're married, but it's, it's just not working out as you hoped. It has not brought the joy that you wanted it to. And that is painful. Like I said, we live in a world for now that still has pain. But, but ultimately, marriage is just a picture created by God of his love for us. It's not that, that, that marriage existed and God thought, well, that would be a good way of, sort of something good to run into the Bible. So I'll, I'll kind of add that in because marriage is all about love and I kind of love. And no, no, no. He created marriage as a dim, dusty reflection of how much he loves us, of how close we're going to be when finally we see him face to face. So even if following Jesus means that I can't walk away from a marriage that actually isn't bringing me the joy I hoped, because I know that Jesus doesn't want me to break my marriage vows, even if marriage means I can't marry the guy that I kind of like but I know isn't trying to follow Christ, and it costs me that, that cost will feel real, but what we gain is so much more. Perhaps you're not a Christian, you're not sure why your friends dragged you along this morning, whatever it might be. What's on offer? Why do your Christian friends keep talking to you about Jesus? Why do they keep inviting you to church or cafe events or whatever? What are they on about? Ultimately, what they're on about, what they should be on about, is joy. That's what they want you to have. They're not trying to bring you into their prison or their weird little cult. or their weird... What they want you to have is joy. The joy that they know. I wonder if sometimes we get the wrong idea. Uh, either when we're trying to persuade people to follow Jesus or, or when someone's trying to persuade us to become a Christian. And we think of it as the kind of, well, it, it, it's better than the other option. Um, I, like all sane people, I hate bananas. Okay? Bananas are terrible, terrible food. And um, I would do anything I can to avoid eating them. Um, but if I was starving, okay, desert island, all there was was bananas, I'd eat bananas. Because even I understand that eating bananas is better than starving to death. Okay, just. Um, what your Christian friend is trying to sell you is not a plate of bananas. Um, we know, Jesus is very clear, in fact, if you look down at verses 49 and 50, Jesus is very clear, actually, that, that as well as a heaven, there is a hell. That's what he's talking about with a fiery furnace. We'll come to it again in a minute. But, but the, the, there is ultimately a division when Jesus returns. But, but Christianity is not just, or knowing Jesus, is not just about kind of avoiding hell. You, know, you, kind of, you get one of those get-out-of-jail-free cards in Monopoly. And, you know, it doesn't give you anything particularly, but at least it stops you going to the bad place. That's not what Christianity is about. It's not less than that. It does do that. But it's more. There's joy on offer. They're offering you not a plate of bananas, but a banquet. Ultimately, that's what God is offering you. Never mind your Christian friend. He's badgering you. That is what God is offering, all of us. God wants us to be happy, to share in that joy. Remember, he didn't need anything. Remember, go back on that timeline before before the world began. He he frankly doesn't need you or me to be happy. He's perfectly okay as he was. He's blessed, happy, needed nothing. But so full of love is he that he wants to share that with us. That's why he made you, ultimately. He gains nothing. So it's pure love. He wants you to know that joy. Knowing God is better than everything. 
And if we try and chase that final joy anywhere else, it'll be like drinking salt water. You go to the beach, you try, you know, when you're a kid, you drink from the sea, and actually it just makes you more thirsty. It doesn't work, does it? We think, oh, well, if I just get a boyfriend, I'll be happy. I'll get a boyfriend, we're not happy. So we switch him for a better version. And that doesn't really work. So we think, well, I better marry him. Maybe marriage will make me happy. And then we marry him, and that hasn't quite worked. And I think, well, maybe starting a family, and that doesn't quite work. And then we think, well, I'll trade him in. We get to sort of our 40s, 50s, better divorce, try again. And, and we're on this eternal quest. It's like trying to climb out of the sea, just using your hands. There's nothing to grip onto. There's no, we get nowhere. By flat, we upgrade to a house. We upgrade to a house in the country. We upgrade to a house in the country with a big garden. We, and we're nowhere. They're not bad things. They are reflections of the greater joy of God. And that's why we can have such pleasure in them. And he gives them to us as gifts. None of this is meant to say that we're not meant to enjoy the good things God gives us. But they're not the ultimate joy. Do you see the, the man with the pearl in verse 46? Finding one pearl of great value. There is only one thing that brings true joy that is worth selling everything else for. God is not tight-fisted. In fact, so much did he want you to have this joy that despite the fact that in our, our sinfulness and our blindness, we've tried to find it in all sorts of other ways. We've turned our back on him. We've ignored him all our lives. He, he, he so wanted you to have it that he was willing to pay the great cost. That's why Jesus dies. He dies for our, our sin. In other words, he dies for our, our wrong desires to find happiness anywhere else. He dies in order that we might be fully forgiven and come back to know him. That's how much he wants to share this joy with you. Look, if you're a Christian, are you overloading another area of your life, trying to find true happiness in it? Your marriage, your job, your children. If you do that, if that is the ultimate place you look for for joy, then to be honest, you're just going to break either yourself or, or the person and things you're trying to find happiness in. They're not capable of giving you that ultimate happiness. They weren't created to. They were created to be little pointers, mirrors, where you find some happiness, just as the man finds some happiness in the reflection, but ultimately it bounces him back to look at his wife. If I look to my wife and think she needs to be the one who gives me such pleasure, such joy, such happiness, that I'm complete, then I'm giving her an unbearable burden. She cannot, cannot satisfy not because of any fault in her, but because she's not God. Knowing God is better than everything. But not everyone sees it. Not everyone sees it. I think that's the point of the parable in verse 47 to 50. The parable of the net. It's very like the parable of the weeds we looked at a week or two ago. And Jesus pictures a, 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 a kind of classic fish scene on, on Lake Galilee. They obviously don't have big trawlers in those days. So often, two men would wade out into the sea with these huge nets, imagine the kind of length of the room, and just drag the net, and they'd catch everything. Some fish they want to eat, and plenty they don't want to. So these fishermen, they they pull the net back onto land, and they separate things out. Okay, tasty fish, and fish to be thrown away. And Jesus says that's what the kingdom of God is like. In other words, not everybody who seems to be in, remember this is the kingdom he's talking about, the the church. Not everyone who seems to be in the church really is in the church. Not everyone who seems to us human beings, you've got fallible sight, 
to be following Jesus really is. It's a sobering passage in lots of ways. Essentially, the fish who get thrown away here are hypocrites, those who've just been pretending sham faith all along. Just because we turn up to church or being baptised or sing the songs or join a community group, that, that is not what gets us into heaven. Ultimately, what gets us into heaven is coming to Christ for forgiveness. That alone makes us a true fish. And at the end of the age, verse 49, Jesus says the division will come. And again, he goes back as he did at the parable of the weeds last week and uses this picture of a fiery furnace and weeping and gnashing of teeth. I may have said last week, I can't remember already, but no one speaks about heaven, sorry, about hell more than Jesus. And so we have no right to soft pedal what he teaches. I can't scrub those bits out of the Bible because I'm not speaking in Jesus' name. Jesus is equally clear about the joy of heaven and about the horror of hell. Weeping, gnashing of teeth. I'm not sure we ever get any physical descriptions of what hell is meant to be like. I don't think we need to imagine a fire in that sense. But whatever it is, it's not going to be better than the imagery. We are meant to flee to Jesus for safety from this fire. Again, if you're not a Christian, that is one of the things your friends are concerned for. And equally, it's why God gives us little tastes, even now, of the judgment to come. Go back to the mirror. If the mirror is a little reflection, you know, we look at our, the man looks at his wife and sees a little reflection of, of uh, his true wife stood behind him. If everything in creation is a reflection of the goodness of God, then, then the pain and suffering we occasionally experience now is meant to be like a, a warning bell, like a little fire alarm going off. It's a little taste of how terrible it would be if our life was nothing but suffering. When you get sick, when you're sad, when you see a scary film, when you're hit by the awfulness of death, anytime, frankly, you suffer in any way, for now it is God shouting at you saying, look, don't head towards this eternally. If the joys of this earth are little foretaste, starters of the pleasure of heaven, then the pains of this earth are little tasters of the terror of hell. Flay it. And Jesus offers you this gift for free if you'll have it. Knowing God is better than everything, not everyone sees it. And not everyone sees it as we close because it's hidden in Jesus. As Jesus finishes the parable in verses 53 to 58, he goes to his hometown, Nazareth. And, and they just don't get it, do they? When he'd finished, verse 53, he, he goes and comes to his hometown and teaches them and they're astonished. And the end result is what? Verse 57, they took offence at him. His own friends, schoolmates, cousins perhaps, they take offence at him. They won't believe. They don't think he is this pearl of great price, a treasure worth selling everything for. And so they get no salvation. Jesus does no miracles. There's no sort of picture of salvation for them. Why? Why do they reject him? Why do these people who know him best reject Jesus? Why do they not think, ah, God has come to us? What do you see? It's all the questions. What's the answer to all their questions? Verse 55, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Aren't his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Aren't his sisters sat over with us? What's the answer to all those questions? Yes, <laughs> he is the carpenter's son. Yeah, his mum's called Mary. Yeah, his brothers Judas and Simon and James, his half-brothers obviously. 
Um, Joseph was his adopted father. And that is why they don't believe, you see. They cannot believe that this man who's grown up in Galilee, in Nazareth, is also the son of God. That is not what God looks like. If God is coming to earth, he is not going to be a carpenter's adopted son. He's not going to have a brother called Simon. You're not going to have bought a chair from him five years ago. You are not going to have learnt to read and write at the same school as him. That's not what God's like. Now, if God comes, it's going to be a power and glory. The angel will come in a, in a train behind him. There'll be trumpets and spectacle and power and glory. He won't turn up with a young mum and a teenage sister. And yet he does. Because that is what God actually is like. Time and again, we find God hidden in the Bible. Hidden not so that we, we can't find him. Not, not trying to be a sports spot so we can't find this joy. But hidden. The parable, the, the treasure was hidden, wasn't it? The pearl was hidden. It wasn't immediately obvious. Because God is not wanting to be found just by the super spiritual or the super clever or the wise. But rather by the humble. For those who don't say, look, God, I'll believe in you if you fulfill my requirements, but rather those who come and listen to him speaking. He shows himself as he wants. And amazingly, it's often in weakness. As we say time and time again, where is God's power most clearly shown? So the cross as Jesus dies, the son of God dying in order that we might have this joy and our sins be paid for. But what did it look like? It looked like a naked Jew nailed to a big tree on a hill outside Jerusalem with a few bored soldiers standing ar- around, eventually skewering him in the side so he'd bleed out. Oh, that's the power of God. If you're sceptical and you're saying, look, I will believe in God when he... dot dot dot, We fall into the same mistake as the people of Nazareth. God comes to us in Jesus. Where we say, look, he's not, he's not here anymore. Where am I going to meet Jesus. Well, that's what verses 51 and 52 tell us. Yes, knowing God is better than everything. Not everyone sees it because God is hidden in Jesus. Where is Jesus hidden? Jesus is hidden in the scriptures in the Bible. Jesus, verse 52, says to them, Every scribe who's been trained, literally discipled for the kingdom of heaven, is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what's new and what is old. We, we can't get into the details here, but Jesus is saying, look... The, there are these discipled scribes, the scribe is someone who, who writes, and they, they have treasure, old and new. A lot of commentators think Matthew is reflecting on himself here. Matthew was a disciple, he wrote this gospel. A disciple who's also a scribe, a writer. And the treasure is in his writing. Matthew's gospel brings us Jesus. Uh, the old, I think, is, is Jesus referring to the Old Testament. And the new, the new, the new news that we get with Jesus. But they're one harmonious message. That's why the Gospel of Matthew is full of allusions to the Old Testament. We, we've hoped you pick that up. Jesus is presented as a bit like David, the great king, a bit like Solomon, the wise king, a bit like Moses, uh, the great leader and freer of God's people. Jesus is presented in so many ways, pictures from the Old Testament. Matthew brings out of the Old Testament all these promises and shadows and pictures and presents us the fullness of them with Jesus. And that's the treasure. You find Jesus wrapped in scripture. Martin Luther said that just as Jesus came into the world in Bethlehem wrapped in swaddling clothes, well now we find him wrapped in the page of scripture. That's why when the, when the queen is crowned, 
she's given all sorts of things. She's given a, a sapphire ring, she's given the orb, the scepter, the crown, obviously, but she's given the Bible. And the Archbishop says to her, Your Majesty, we present you with this book, the most valuable thing this world affords. The most valuable thing this world affords. We've just given you priceless jewels, but this is the most valuable thing this world affords. It's not, it's not just pious words. It's the most valuable thing because it contains Jesus, the pearl of great price, the way we can know God. It's picking up the language of the great pearl or the great treasure. Bible brings us to know God. So the idea of the Bible, the reason God has given you the Bible is so you might know joy until finally he returns and we see him face to face. So this is community group or mum's Bible study or you're sat at home with the Bible yourself or you come to church to listen to a sermon. What are you doing? What are we meant to be doing? Some of us are thinking, oh, this is a slog. You get on for ages compared to my last minister. Some of us are thinking, look, I, oh, man, I'm just tired. Some of us are thinking, well, I really want to understand. I want to understand how Matthew's gospel fits together. And I, I want to know and learn. And What we're meant to be doing is coming and saying to God, God, my Father, pour out your spirit so I might have the joy of knowing you through Jesus. That is why you've given me the word. Not just fill my head with facts. Not so that I can learn to teach the Bible. Not so that I might have joy of knowing you. It's not selfish. It's kind of self-interested, but God wants to be self-interested in that way. Again, go back to the, the man looking in the mirror with his wife behind him. If he was to say, no, no, I, I don't want to turn around because that would just give me joy. That would just be giving me pleasure if I came over to embrace you. That's not, makes no sense. She wants him to, to, to find his great delight in her, his wife. It, it's honouring her if he selfishly finds joy in the fact that his wife has come home. Well, the same too with God. He wants us to have this joy. That's why he's given Jesus to us. That's why Christ laid down his life. Not just that we'd barely be forgiven, but that we'd have joy. Christian, skeptic, not sure. This is where true happiness is found. This is where true joy is found. Go to him and he will give. The treasure is hidden, but only in Christ. And the cross shows us that he is willing, even at the cost of his own blood, to share it with us. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that this life, that our existence is not just uh, a passing breath, uh, that we're not on this fool's quest, this never-ending journey to find a joy that is unattainable. We thank you that there is joy, uh, that in you, our great God, Father, Son, and Spirit, is everything we need. And that we can know you through Jesus who took on our flesh, became one of us. We pray, therefore, for everybody here this morning, that you would give that joy. For those who are yours, who are struggling to know the joy of knowing Christ, be kind, gracious, and pour your love upon them. For those who are still unsure, open eyes, we pray, in order that they might know uh, the uh, treasure, uh, the pearl of great price. And give us, we pray, hearts for your word uh, that come not seeking to master uh, a book, but rather to discover and drink deeply uh, from the great wells of joy uh, that are stored within it. Do this, we pray, through the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.